A crown of thorns placed on his head He knew that he would soon be dead He said, did you forget me, Father, did you? They nailed him to a wooden cross Soon all the world would feel the loss Of Christ the King before us Hallelujah 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 He hung his head and prepared to die then lifted his face up to the sky He said, I'm coming home now, Father, to you A reed which held his final sip Was gently placed upon his lips He drank his last and gave his soul to glory Hallelujah The soldier who had used his sword to pierce the body of our Lord said, truly, this was Jesus Christ, our Savior. He looked with fear upon his sword, then turned to face his Christ and Lord, fell to his knees, Took from his head the thorny crown and wrapped him in a linen gown, then laid him down to rest inside the tomb. The holes in his hand, his feet, his side, now in our hearts, we know he died to save us from our sins. Oh, Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.
Well, I'm supposed to have some sort of April Fool's joke to bring before everybody this morning. Um, however, I don't. So uh, it's an interesting thing to have Easter or Resurrection Sunday full on April Fool's Day. April Fool's is a rather superstitious, hard-to-trace secular holiday. The merging of these days hasn't occurred since 1956, but we won't have to wait another 62 years to experience it again. Easter Sunday will fall on April 1st again in 2029, and then again in 2040. I imagine most of us here this morning know the story of Jesus Christ's resurrection, looking around the room. It could be said that the resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week almost 2,000 years ago has been celebrated throughout the world for centuries. Such a big deal that many gathered this morning at Jones Beach, or even right down here in Blue Point, for a sunrise worship service. There is historical precedence to such celebration. In Luke chapter 24, verse 1, we read that the women early in the morning went to the tomb of Jesus Christ. In 1732, some young men of the Moravian community at Hernut, Germany, went to the cemetery at dawn to meditate on Christ's resurrection. This became known historically as the first sunrise worship service. In 1741, the Moravians in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, celebrated the first Easter sunrise service here in America. What I want to do is bring you through some of the details regarding Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And however, I do preface this with a warning that it's not going to sound as beautiful as it did when Meredith gave us many of the details of the death, burial, and resurrection. Mine's going to give you a little bit more of the, the harder details of such a, the death and b- resurrection. So Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was disowned by Peter. He was arrested by the temple guard. And then he was brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, where he was mocked, spat upon, and beaten. The next morning, Jesus, battered, bruised, and bleeding, is led into the Roman praetorium. There he is stripped and subjected to the brutality of Roman flogging. A whip replete with razor-sharp bones and lead balls reduced his body to quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. As Christ slumped into the pool of his own blood, the soldiers threw a scarlet robe across his shoulders, thrust a scepter into his hand, and pressed sharp thorns into his scalp, mocking Jesus' authority as a king, as the king. They then took the scepter out of his hand and repeatedly striked him on the head with it. Finally, a wooden beam is then thrust upon his bleeding body, now in critical condition, and he is led away to a place called Golgotha. There, the Lord experiences ultimate physical torture in the form of the cross. Matter of fact, we've come up with an English word, the word excruciating, that was, this word was made to be a term that codified the torture of the Roman cross. At this place, Golgotha, the place of the skull, the Roman soldiers drive thick seven-inch iron spikes through Christ's hands and feet. Waves of pain pulsate throughout his body as the nails lacerate his nerves. Breathing becomes an agonizing endeavor as Christ pushes his body upward, grasping for small gasps of air. In the ensuing hours, he experiences cycles of joint-wrenching cramps, intermittent asphyxiation, and excruciating pain as his lacerated back moves up and down against the rough timber of that cross. 
As the chill of death creeps through his body, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then, with his passion complete, Jesus Christ gave up his spirit. Shortly thereafter, a Roman legionnaire drives his spear through Jesus Christ's ribcage, up into his heart. There rushes forth blood and water, demonstrating conclusively that Jesus Christ has suffered fatal torment. He then was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arrhythmia. Three days later, the body is gone. Jerusalem would have been the last place Christianity would have ever taken off had Jesus Christ not risen from the dead, had there been a body in that tomb that morning. One scholar noted that the resurrection proclamation could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. Evidence found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, and reports by ancient historians tell us that the Jewish leaders tried to explain that the tomb was empty because Jesus' disciples stole his body. This suggests that the Jewish authorities acknowledged the fact that Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb. They didn't object to the tomb being empty. They tried to explain this fact away, which establishes for us the fact that the tomb was indeed empty. In the Acts of the Apostles, Dr. Luke writes that Jesus gave the disciples many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a forty of a sorry, he appeared to them over a period of forty days. You see how I mix those up? Forty and period at the same time? Forty? Um, so uh, he appeared to them over forty days in his post resurrected state, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Acts chapter one, verse three. The Apostle Paul exudes confidence in the appearances of Christ. In his first letter to the Corinthian Christians, he provides details and descriptions. He says, For what I received I pass on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. Perfectly, we've put that in the right context, right? Still living. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. No one has ever come up with a credible means to explain away the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. Skeptics are often reduced to pointing off the appearances of Christ as mere hallucinations. In reality, hallucinations are subjective and scarce. Yet Christ appeared to many people over a long period of time. In addition, hallucinations are typically relegated to people with certain personality disorders, are stimulated by expectations, and they do not, ex- they do not stop abruptly. In the case of Christ... He appeared to all kinds of people who had no expectations of him appearing to them. And then all of a sudden, the appearances stopped. Right after the 40 days and the 40 nights, nobody else seems to have this vision that they've, or this appearance of Christ. Perhaps Professor Pernin, the late New Testament scholar at the University of Chicago, said it best. 
the more we study the tradition with regard to the appearances of Christ in his post-resurrected state, the firmer the rock begins to appear upon which they are based. What happened as a result of the resurrection is unprecedented in all of history. In the span of 300 years, a small following of seemingly insignificant believers succeeded in turning an entire empire upside down and conquering it. All based upon the testimony of men and women who had seen and touched the risen Christ. While it is conceivable that they would have faced torture, vilification, and even cruel deaths for what they fervently believed to be true, it's inconceivable that they would have been willing to die for what they knew to be a lie. Ultimately, what I just summarized for you is what many would call the feet of Christ. And I'm not talking about the feet, these feet. I'm talking about the F-E-A-T of Christ. The fatal torment, the empty tomb, the appearances, and the transformation, the transforming effect Christianity has had throughout the ages. As a group of people who believe this, perfectly everybody in this room believes in the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Once we establish that, what I want us to do is I want us to focus on and think through what Christ said to his followers in his post-resurrected state. And if you want to take a look with me, we're going to take a look at John chapter 20. And I'm just going to be reading a few verses from the text. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. It's on page 1085 of the Pew Bible. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, now we're talking about later in the day, right? We've been talking about the morning all morning. Now we're talking about later on in that day. The first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So he says peace to them and then he gives them the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit the set-apart spirit. As we think through our intentions of gathering this morning, no matter where we are in our journey or our life in Christ, I believe each and every one of us here are seeking, pursuing, growing in, or desiring to offer the world a greater peace. Greater peace has a reality for each and every one of us that are in this room. I think we can all agree that peace comes with wisdom. Right? I see some head shaking. Peace comes with wisdom. I will demonstrate this morning that rather than seeking peace in the variety of, quote, spiritual methods that have been offered by the world, or the spirituality that is often fostered by the world, and the gaining of a peace that does not satisfy, Rather, the peace that we all seek, a peace that surpasses understanding, is found in, established upon, the simple yet powerful truth of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. 
Yet that very foundation of our faith, what we believe is the very foundation of truth, is at odds with what the world calls truth. The wisdom from above, God's wisdom, spiritual wisdom, received the Holy Spirit, does not come natural to the mind of man. Rather, to the mind of man, it's seen as foolishness. The Bible talks a lot about wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible is really the art of understanding the shape of our world and how to act in accordance with that understanding. Such as a wise farmer who knows the way the ground works, knows the season, knows the atmosphere, and then he goes about setting, you know, planting his crops. Or you think of a wise builder. He first knows the, the layout of the land. He knows you know, what the weather is going to be like so he can begin to build. And then he begins to build. These are things of wisdom. That's wisdom. It's important to gain an understanding of the different types of wisdom that are available. One type seemingly comes natural to us. And sometimes, being fair, sometimes we can find peace through what comes natural. However, I will charge that it always leaves us dissatisfied. On the other hand, we have a wisdom that is from above that does not come natural, that's provided through the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. And that wisdom, that peace that comes through that wisdom, satisfies completely and eternally. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul preached the gospel and the philosophers that were around him at that time, they said, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. And the text tells us they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. In Acts chapter 26, a Roman king, after Paul gives Festus this long detailed explanation of his hope, his gospel, and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the response of King Festus is, you are out of your mind, Paul. Your much learning has driven you insane. Let's be clear this morning. The notions that the world is smarter than the church, or rather the unfortunate mistake of believing that I can gain a relationship with God, I can gain a peace that comes from God by the accumulation of more and more knowledge, is nothing new. It's not a novel idea. People have been blind to the realities of God for centuries and have sought to set up arguments against the true knowledge of God. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul details this as our fight or our warfare as Christians to demolish such arguments in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul waged war against false knowledge or wisdom that characterized his day and age in many of his writings. In the letter to the Corinthian church, Corinth, again, a place, a bastion of false knowledge and wisdom, the Apostle Paul rebukes such a mentality and wisdom that pervaded that church. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. He says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God... The world, through its wisdom, did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. In a manner of mocking such wisdom that was evident there at Corinth, the wisdom of the world, the Apostle Paul says, 
in 1 Corinthians 4.10, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. Again, talking to that church there at Corinth. You are just so wise. We're fools. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. Again, mocking that false notion of wisdom that the Corinthian church seemed to have. You see, two false teachings that pervaded the churches in Corinth were Epicurean and Stoic philosophies and Sophia teachings, which were basically Hellenistic Jewish mysticism. Both highlighted wisdom as a means of salvation. Not the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not the death of Jesus Christ. Wisdom. Right? The more you know, the more you know about God. A carnal way of gaining the peace that we desire. Sadly, while rebuked in biblical literature, these false philosophies not only pervaded that ancient culture, they pervade our common society today. And sadly, they've influenced the church in many areas. They've affected the church in many areas. Epicureanism teaches that the greatest good is to seek modest pleasure in order to attain a state of tranquility. So you basically, you know, you, you decide what things work for you based upon modesty. And if you do that, this philosophy teaches that's how you know God, by guarding yourself, doing the things that seem right to you, doing, not doing the things that seem bad to you. Anybody know somebody that holds that view? I know quite a few people. They think their relationship with God is dependent upon the good things or the bad things that they do and their decisions in doing those things. This was being rebuked by the Apostle Paul at Corinth. The other teaching, Stoicism, teaches that the practice of virtue is both necessary and sufficient to achieve happiness and peace. So you have to have good virtues. You, have to have, uh, you should be very diligent in your spiritual disciplines, which again, we would agree with, but we uh, prayerfully, I, I believe everybody in this room would know that that's not where we base our salvation and our peace. It doesn't come from how much wisdom I know or how strict I am in disciplining my life. Again, a very popular notion in our society. The Sophia teachings that the Jews held to, they believed that through their gaining of knowledge and virtue, this is how they would come into communion with God. I have so many friends that believe this. All my friends believe the more books they read and you know, the more natural philosophy they seem to understand, the better they know God regardless to knowing anything or believing anything about Jesus Christ. Again, the Apostle Paul flat out rebukes such teachings. In 1 Corinthians 2, 13 through 14, the Apostle Paul said this, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, For they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The wisdom of this world is different and even opposed to God-given wisdom. God's wisdom, in contrast to leaning on our own understandings, is supremely demonstrated in the death and resurrection of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Rather than a peace that we can muster up dependent upon our interest, Again, if you like to read, right, then you could read more. Instead of gaining this peace by our interest or our attentiveness to reading, true peace comes from the simple wisdom of God. And it's not something I can do myself. A wisdom that comes from above is a firm foundation, and it's understanding and having faith in 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's such wisdom that we celebrate today. That's when you really think about what do we really celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. We're celebrating the wisdom that has come from above. The irony of it all cannot be avoided. Last week we gathered reminiscing our king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey over 2,000 years ago. He demonstrated his kingdom comes in peace by riding in on that donkey into the city that day. However, such a kingdom, such wisdom that comes from God, was betrayed, mocked, and beaten, and thought to be killed off. They thought they killed off such foolishness. That foolish kingdom, the foolishness of believing the cross and resurrection. However, foolish men have continued and do continue to call the truth foolishness. The truth always prevails. Sure enough, we know three days later, after they thought they had killed off our foolish Savior, again, I'm a fool for Christ, the scriptures say that he set the captives free three days later in his resurrection. So many were, and so many today, are held captive to false thoughts regarding God, false thoughts regarding attaining peace, and ultimately the pursuit of wisdom. Bondage, death, division, and destruction have proven to be the product of carnal wisdom, a seeking after man's efforts of peace, dependent upon governments, dependent upon personal volition, whatever it might be, have continued to reap devastation and death when we add that as our source of finding peace. However, the wisdom of God, that which makes us fools for Christ, is that wisdom from above that carries the potential to change the world. So in making our Easter message a bit short this morning, I want, us to have a, I want to have us leaving this place thinking through some very intentional things. Prayerfully, I already have you thinking about the contrast of the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God, the peace that this world seems to offer and the peace that God offers. And again, this is all contingent upon that very foundation of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Such a mighty, powerful, and factual foundation and wisdom provides us, the body of the risen Lord, the opportunity to truly offer peace, a peace that satisfies and lasts to a world that's in desperate need of it. In the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul emphasizes that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead resides in and can be found in and through the church. Again, that's an interesting text to read there in Ephesians 1. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead can be found in and through the church. The fullness of God being present in his church is a whole other teaching. And again, that's something we regularly celebrate in our Lord's table. I think it's fair to say our communion this morning was celebrated in the basement over pancakes and uh, syrup. And there were some matzahs down there, to be fair. So... And juice, right? That juice is a part of coffee and juice. Perfectly, you all felt that communion that we can have. Again, we, we don't have to be overly religious in that regard. We can know that the fullness of God was demonstrated in our breakfast communion. However, in that church to the letter to the in that letter to the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul offers some insights regarding 
how a people who have such a spirit, who have the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who have the spirit that is intended to bring peace. Again, that's the first two things Jesus says to his disciples that evening. Peace be with you. I've raised so that you might have peace. That's what we're called to offer the world. So the question we need to ask ourselves, and the question we need to leave here this morning really taking to heart is, well, then how do we display such a spirit, not only amongst ourselves, but to a world out there? And the text I want to take us to in closing is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 21. And I'm going to propose this morning that this is our devotion right here. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. As we leave here this morning as a church that celebrates the risen Lord, that celebrates the wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom that truly gives a peace that surpasses all understanding, this is our devotion. The Apostle Paul here says to the church at Ephesus, beginning at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Perfectly in your Bibles, you're already, or in your notes, you're already beginning to underline imitators of God. Right there, that's a subject that we could all begin to talk about, right? What does it mean to imitate God? What are the things that you've seen from him? Right there we see in the text that Jesus Christ gave up his life for us. Where are we doing that? Where are you giving up your life so that other people might have peace? Furthermore, in that same text there, verse 2, walking in love. Where are we doing that in our lives? Where are you doing that? Walking in love. Or Again, you're walking in love just as Christ's offering of himself in walking in love was a fragrant aroma. I would venture to say that our doing the same is a fragrant aroma to God. When we decide to be imitators of God and walk in love. Moving again into verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Again, being a thankful people, allowing our thankful hearts to take up the substance of our conversation rather than or what was evident here at the church of Ephesus, uh, filthy jesting and joking and you know, all the details that made up that Gentile lifestyle. For us, we know coming into the body of Christ and knowing all of these details that our focus is on giving thanks for the beautiful things that we have through Jesus Christ. Verse 5, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Again, I believe most of us are aware of who the sons of disobedience are in Scripture, right? They were that first century religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that Jesus Christ specifically told them that they were these people, that you know they, they are the sons of disobedience, they are the sons of the devil. They are those that said many things repetitiously with no substance. They thanked God, but their thanks came with no substance. It wasn't the thanks of fruitful lips. Again, we see that in Hebrews. It doesn't say that we are our sacrifice of thanksgiving is to just lift up praise. It says the praise of fruitful lips. Again, 
That's what we're talking about here when we're talking about uh, not being sons of disobedience, that we wouldn't be a people that just give empty praises to God, that we would just talk about the things of God in an empty manner. Therefore, verse 7, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly in darkness, but now, and again, we know darkness is a synonym for confusion, death, despair. We were formerly there. But now, as children of the Lord, children of the Lord, being in light in the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes light is light, visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, saints, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. May we endeavor to be such a people. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you, Lord, for the power that you have given the church. That it would not be of ourselves, Lord, but by faith we would come to you. And not only would we be saved, but we would become the salvation of the earth. That your body would walk worthy of the power you have given us. That we would look to this devotion here in Ephesians, Lord, and walk as imitators of you. Give us such a power. Give us such a privilege, Lord. As we look out at a world of despair, Lord, but this morning we celebrate a mighty kingdom. A kingdom that this world all too often misses and fails to see the power of. Yet we know that reality, Lord. Allow us this morning to relish such, that, such a truth, Lord that we would truly look to the, the feet of your resurrection and establish our faith upon that, gaining a wisdom that is beyond the wisdom of this world, Lord, that is from above, so that we might heal this dying world. Lord, thank you for the peace that you have given your people. Thank you for a peace that surpasses all understanding. Give us that desire to bless others with such a peace as we grow in, grow in it ourselves. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Before we get into singing our closing hymn, I would like to invite our ushers to come forward and we will collect our benevolent offering.